Good morning, everybody. Please pray with me. Lord God, as we turn our attention to your word, we recognize that you desire for us to know who you are and how you work, and that you desire to equip us for the days and the seasons in which we live. And so we pray now that your spirit, which inspired this word, would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to it, that we would be so equipped for the sake of your glory. Amen. The world is coming to an end. Did you know that? The world is coming to an end. And for as long as humans have been in existence, there have been theories and predictions as to how and why and when that would happen. I think of a number of the most recent theories that you could read about in the news almost every day about how the world will come to an end. Some believe that the world will come to an end by catastrophic event. Nostradamus was a 16th century apothecary. He was considered, or is considered today, as a prophet by many who are conspiracy theorists. Reading his works from 1555, they believe that he has predicted the end of the world to occur in 2018 by way of great natural disaster. Others believe that the world will come to an end because of climate change. Last year in 2017, David Wallace Wells wrote an article for the New York Magazine that claims that climate change will rapidly destroy the earth, making it uninhabitable. He says, quote, If your anxiety about global warming is dominated by fears of sea level rise, you are barely scratching the surface of what terrors are possible even within the lifetime of a teenager today. He would later explain how the earth is quickly becoming uninhabitable and how all of humanity could burn up. A lot of other theories about the end of the world. Who can forget Y2K? Our dependence on computers and the impending crash of those computers while the calendar was turning from 1999 to 2000 was supposed to create a mass confusion among the global population which would result the beginning of the end. One of the most common things talked about today with regard to the end of the world is the possibility of nuclear war. Almost every week you'll hear another story about Nuclear war being the way that the world will end. And as we look through the last 30 or 40 years, we see whether it was the arms race between the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War, or the jihadi terrorists getting a hold of a nuclear bomb during the 2000s, or the concern today about North Korea and its nuclear program. Nuclear war, nuclear holocaust, World War III is regularly put before us as the way that the world will end. And then, of course, there are various predictions from people, different religious sects and religious leaders and authors and the like. For example, the Watchtower Society of the Jehovah's Witnesses has predicted the return of Jesus Christ, which would constitute, in their mind, the end of the world, in 1878, 1881, 1914, 1918, 1925, and 1975. 
and we're still here. Other religious writers, like Pat Robertson or Hal Lindsey or Harold Camping, or even some politicians have claimed that they live among the last generation that will live on earth. Some of them have the intent to sell more books or to make a headline. Others of them are sincere in their trying to inform the public of what they believe will happen. And then, of course, there's always the folklore and fiction and fun of the impending zombie apocalypse. Enough said. For Christians, we have a more specific view about the end of the world. And... The beginning of the end of the world, which we see in the Bible is characterized as the second coming of Jesus. The physical, visible return of the Son of God. And as long as the church has been in existence, questions about when that day will be, what will the events around it be like, and what will happen upon his return, these questions have been asked. And today, we pick up that type of line of questioning in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And so, if you haven't opened your Bible yet, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this today is part two of a sermon that we preached last week about the coming of the Lord. Today, we talk about what is called in the Bible as the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 says this. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, people are saying there's peace and safety, peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether awake or asleep, we might live for him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We see three things that Paul wants us to know regarding the day of the Lord. And he approaches the topic in such a way that focuses much more on the human experience of this day than the physical or visible descending of Jesus that we saw in the previous chapter and we talked about last week. The first thing that we see is that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Like a thief in the night. This idea of the day of the Lord is a common expression throughout the Bible to describe the second coming of the Lord Jesus. The culmination of human history and 
judgment that would come. And if you were here last week, you heard about the second coming in the previous chapter being described with language of a majestic and glorious and royal return as Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, descended from heaven and the dead in Christ rose to meet him in the air, and the living who were faithful in following him would rise to meet him as well, and they would be with him forever. And the picture of that coming is powerful and encouraging and glorious. And here we see that very same event referred to with very different language. It's talked about in terms of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was prophesied about hundreds of years before Jesus even came to earth. It's not a positive and glorious return alone, but it is the day that the nations would be judged. Those who felt God was distant, those who thought that he could be ignored, those who opposed him, and still some who worshipped other gods. All of the world would see Jesus return on the day of the Lord, and this day would be a terrible day. The day of judgment. Listen to some of the ways that it's described in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6 says, Wail! Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Or Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Or the book of Joel, which talks much about the day of the Lord, says in chapter 2, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, Let all of the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Or Joel chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Or even looking ahead to the New Testament, you see the day of the Lord described in ways that will stop you in your tracks. Just one such example that corresponds with this text in 1 Thessalonians 5 is found in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so you see... For some, this day will be a terrible day. And Paul says that it will come like a thief in the night. Now, I don't know if you've ever been robbed before. I haven't. But thieves don't usually tell you when they're going to show up at your house. Pro tip. They come when you least expect it. Just when you think everything is secure, just when you think everything is going according to plan, just when you think things are just fine, before you know it, you turn around and the thief has already taken your stuff. And he says that the day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus, 
will have that same type of surprise to it. And in fact, this return will be so unsuspecting that people will be bragging about the opposite reality to be true. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3 says that while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now for the people of the church of Thessalonica, this would sound very strange on a number of levels. Because they lived in a time under the establishment of the Pax Romana of the Roman Empire. That under Augustus, peace and safety, peace and safety, peace and safety, that was the slogan of the empire. (laughs) And the Thessalonians had benefited greatly from this peace and from the Roman politic, and it favored the city so much that this city responded by erecting a temple in honor of the divine Julius Caesar and Augustus who they called the Son of God. Peace and safety was the way of life. Peace and safety was the pride of the people of this city. And he says, just when you think peace and safety are here, just when you think everything is going to be okay, that's when he comes. Now, in our time, the idea is slightly different, right? Because depending upon which news cycle that you are watching, the idea of peace and safety might be very near or it might be very far away. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is a, is, represents a group of people who publishes the famous Doomsday Clock. Have you ever heard of that? The Doomsday Clock is a clock where these atomic scientists reckon when the end of the world will happen based on a number of factors in the world. And they, they estimate right now that we are at two minutes to midnight. Which means that in the course of human history, we are very, 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 very near to the end. And they would say because of a variety of ecological factors and the increased nuclear arms pressure between the United States and North Korea, this means that we are on the brink of the end of the world. There's two minutes to go. Conversely, If you've watched the news in the last 48 hours, you've seen that there's been historic talks between North Korea and South Korea. So much so that this has led some to boldly and maybe even prematurely state that the 68-year Korean War has now formally come to an end. And that we are closer to achieving world peace than at any other time in our lifetime as a result. The point is this, that while people are trying to find great comfort in the fact that they have peace with their neighbors, they are wrongfully forgetting about the most important type of peace, peace with God. Human flourishing, lack of war, peace and prosperity, a spirit of cooperation, all of these things are noble endeavors for the human life, but they woefully miss the most important and eternal pursuit. A greater peace. Peace with God. And this leads us, of course, to the great news of the gospel. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can have peace with God. That we don't just 
say that our temporary happiness or our eternal happiness has to do with human flourishing or peace on earth, but that there is a greater peace. That through faith in Jesus, as it says in Romans chapter 5, we become justified before God. That when we put our faith in him to forgive us of our sins, he does forgive them. And then he changes our status before God. As one who is an enemy of God to one who is a friend of God. Of one who stands condemned to one who stands before him justified. And that's why it says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. No more battling against him. No more wondering where we stand No more wondering about what is going to happen on the great and mighty and terrible day of the Lord. And for those who do not have peace with God, well, the day of the Lord will come upon them like intense labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Pains that are inescapable. And so you see that the day of the Lord is a terrible day for some, for all who don't have peace with God. But the day of the Lord is not a terrible day for everyone. It's not a day of impending doom for all humankind. For some, this day would be a glorious day. And that's where we turn our attention to verse 4. Because we see that for the Christian, the day of the Lord will not come like a thief in the night. Look with me at verse 4. It says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. It's interesting as we look at the cultural conceptions of the apocalypse or the end of the world or the day of the Lord or as we consider, even as Christians, what we think is going to happen, we so often forget this very clear and basic teaching that we are not all going to be completely surprised. That in fact, those who are found in the Lord Jesus won't be surprised. That doesn't mean that He's going to tell us the date and the calendar or the day of his coming as much as we might like that. But it does mean that we will be prepared for his coming in such a way that when he appears, we will actually embrace it instead of cower in fear as a result of it. And so he gives us this description as an encouragement to do the things that he calls us to do, and he does so by contrasting the nature of light and darkness. He says, you are children, you're all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He calls us children of the light. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a child of the light. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus is described in John chapter 1 as the light that shines in the darkness and the life that is the light of men. We see that our conversion to faith in Jesus is referred to as a movement from darkness to light, that there's no morally neutral ground in the middle, there's no playing both sides, you're either in the darkness or you're in the light. Listen to some of the ways that the Bible describes it. Acts chapter 26, 18, that that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Or Ephesians 5.8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 
Walk as children of the light. Or Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so, throughout the Bible, the description of the Savior is one of light. The description of the Christian is one who moves from darkness to light. And the description of the Christian life is one that lives in the light. Children of the light, children of the day, he says. And that's how you are to live. Now, I know it's hard. We all recognize it's hard to live completely in the light. But doing so constitutes readiness for the return of Jesus. And what this means is that we live in a way that reflects a sense of alertness and sobriety. I think that's what he's talking about when he says you're in the day and you're awake and you're sober. We live in such a manner that we look at the tasks of every day, of every day, and we say we're going to be faithful to the next thing that God has for us. We're alert. And we live with a sense of this dual field of view that we've talked about before. That on the horizon of history, we're ever looking to the coming of our Savior. But here's something interesting. That this dual field of view is not just simply, I look up here at what I have next right in front of me, and I look to the horizon, and that's something completely different. Because what he's getting at here is that as you live in the light, as you are awake and alert, as you pursue faithfulness every single day, this actually promotes in you a vision for the return of Christ so that you will not be surprised. I want to pause just so we can grasp that. Living faithfully in the Lord right now will give you a vision and a preparation for his second coming. Faithfulness. Living faithfully results in being ready for the day of the Lord. Did you know that nearly every time the return of Christ is talked about in the Bible, nearly every time, it's followed by an exhortation to holy living or faithfulness to God. What does that tell us? It tells us that whenever this great and glorious and terrible and mighty day occurs, that he's not trying to just communicate to us the details of what is going to happen or to help us to see or to read the times in such a way that we can predict that tomorrow's the day. Instead, these exhortations regularly tell us and help us that we don't need to know those things, but that we should be prepared for the day when it comes. And that's what he's getting at here. That living faithfully results in being ready for the day of the Lord. And this type of thinking shows a concern for the present and for the future. And we need to be reminded of that sometimes, especially in the midst of a culture like ours where it's a live for the moment, you only live once type of culture. You should be looking to the future in all kinds of ways. You should be looking to the future as it results to raising your kids, as it results to saving for retirement, as it results to the habits and patterns of your life and how they will play out wisely, hopefully, over the course of time. But you should be looking to the future with regards to things of the Lord and eternity as well. A story is told of the man who was walking on the beach and he found washed up onto the sand a used magic lamp. And 
what would you do if you came across a lamp that looked somewhat magical? You'd rub the lamp. I know you. You would. You'd resist for a little while, and then 10 seconds later, you would rub the lamp just to see what would happen. And sure enough, a genie came out. And the genie informed the man that there was just one remaining wish for this lamp. And the man pondered for a moment, and he thought, what could he request? And he requested a copy of the stock page from the local newspaper dated one year into the future. And in a puff of smoke, the genie disappeared, and in his place was the financial news. Delighted, the man sat down on the beach to start to peruse his new prize. He could now invest in his future with certainty. Knowing the winners a whole year in advance. And as he looked through the pages, the paper fell into his lap as the wind blew and it turned over to the last page of the section, which happened to be the obituary. And he found a name at the top that caught his attention. It was his. You don't need to know the news a year from now or 10 years from now to pick the winners. You can invest with certainty right now in your future by living in the light. Living faithfully will prepare you for the day of the Lord. Does your life reflect that type of faith in the Lord? Or to put it another way, your life does reflect what kind of faith you have in the Lord. Those who live in the light live a certain way. Those who live in the dark live a different way. And so he says, don't sleep. Don't live like one in the darkness. As one scholar says, act what you are every day. Are you doing that? I wonder what the areas of your life are that might indicate that you aren't ready for the day of the Lord. Because you see here in verses 6 and 7 and 8, this challenge and this warning. And the warning is the idea of sleeping or living in the darkness or getting drunk. It's not just talking about laziness and abuse of alcohol, though that's part of it. He's referring to giving yourself over to a vice or vices and to be generally apathetic toward the place of sin in your life. This constitutes sleeping, constitutes not being ready. And so the warning is to turn, Christian, turn from your sins, seek forgiveness, live in the light all the more, and as you do, you will be ready for his return. And the warning is for those of us who have resisted making Jesus our Lord, who have resisted putting our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins, that you should resist no longer. (laughs) Embrace him in faith and ask him for forgiveness that you too would be saved and prepared When the day comes. Now think about with me for a minute what this means just practically. Knowing this, as Marty said as we introduced the service today, 
to know the seasons and the times and try to discern some of them. Think about what it means for us just every single day in the life of a Christian. It means, number one, that you don't have to buy into the cultural narrative, whether you see it on Fox News or CNN or another station, that is creating a narrative toward the end of the world. There's a different narrative that Christians follow. It means that you don't have to be afraid that the world is going to end by nuclear war or heat stress on the environment or an asteroid that hits the earth. And as amusing as some of those speculations might be and as important as some of those issues might be in our time, there's something greater at play here. And this should inform your view about current events and where they lead us to. This means that the goal of humanity and your goal to contribute to humanity is not to broker peace in the world. As wonderful as it sounds, and as no matter how many times Miss America says it, it means that peace with God is the primary goal for you and helping others have peace with God is the best way that you can contribute to this region of the country or to this country as a whole or to the world as a whole. That the idea of world peace as such is not what motivates you. A greater peace is at play. And this should fuel our evangelistic action because the day of the Lord is coming and you don't know when. This means that you don't have to be afraid that Jesus will come back and find you doing something that will cause you to be frightened at his coming. You've heard it before. Your mother has said it to you probably. If Jesus comes back today, is he going to be pleased to find you with what you're doing right now? Stop fighting with your sister. You don't have to be afraid that when Jesus comes back, he will find you doing something that will cause you to be frightened by him. Firstly, because Jesus, if you have faith in him, promises to hold you fast, to keep you in his fellowship, to express his love and grace and mercy to you all of your days as he moves you from sinner to saint to perfection. But it also means that because you have faith in him, this compels you to live a certain way. You act what you are. You live in the light. You're a child of the day. But secondly, look with me at verses 9 and 10. You don't have to be afraid because as it says in verses 9 and 10, for God has not destined us for wrath, being Christians, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. Here, he's using the idea of being awake as the Christians who are alive and who are ready and are living faithfully. He's using the idea of being asleep a little bit differently than he's using it earlier in the passage. Earlier in the passage, he talks about those being asleep or those who are not ready. Those who are living in the darkness. Those who are not Christians. Here, he's using the idea of asleep not in that way. He's using it like he used it in the previous chapter. Do you remember that? He said, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. He's talking about the dead. 
the dead who are in Christ. And so you don't need to know the precise day when Jesus will return. You don't need to know. You don't need to follow the predictions. And you certainly would be foolish to offer a prediction of your own. You just need to be ready. Faithfulness results in being ready for the day of the Lord. Living faithfully results in being ready for the day of the Lord. And he concludes this section in a similar way that he concluded the previous one. Did you notice that? Look at verse 11 with me. He says, therefore, in light of all of these things, in light of the great and terrible day of the Lord, that it will come like a thief, that people will be judged, that Christians will be saved, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. It mirrors the previous section. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 18, the end of chapter 4. He says, in light of Jesus coming back in a great and glorious return and the dead rising in Christ and those who are alive in Christ meeting him in the air, therefore encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another and build each other up. To encourage one another is to, in this sense, in the deepest sense, is to remind one another by offering a perspective on the real nature of things. And therefore that gives us encouragement or courage. It, to build one another up is so important because it enables us as Christians to persevere till the end. There's a thread throughout the whole New Testament about Christians building one another up. That's part of what it means to be a local church. It's part of what it means to be a family of believers together. That we are not just disconnected entities with our own personal relationship with God, but that actually part of you persevering to the end is you leaning on the person who's very next to you in the pew right now and building them up as they build you up. I think we do a good job of this in some larger venues and some maybe classrooms. It's hard to know if we do well at this interpersonally or not. But nevertheless, the call is there. Romans 15, 2 says, Let us please his neighbor and do good. Let each of us please his neighbor and do good to build him up. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Ephesians 2, or 4, 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Colossians 2, 7 talks about being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so the idea of a Christian having a growing experience with God as they never are part of a local church but have church out in the woods by themselves is completely absent from the New Testament. We build each other up as we remind each other of the real nature of things. So when there's some among us who are struggling with doubt, we encourage them and we build them up. If there are some among us who are clearly dabbling in sin, we remind them of the clear nature of things and we encourage them and we build them up toward faithfulness in the Lord. And when one among us is absent or disengaging from the things of the Lord or the community of believers, we Try to encourage them and build them up because we need each other 
This is part of living the Christian life. And living faithfully results in being ready for the day of the Lord. I want to close this morning with the words of Jesus himself. Listen to what he says about this day. His day. The day that he's coming back. He says in Mark chapter 13, But concerning that day, or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would continue to compel us in faithfulness with what you have for us every day. That by the power of your spirit that you would keep us alert to the things that are around us, to the attacks of the evil one to our own temptations to fall and that we would be ever more growing as children of the day and children of the light. That we would be diligent. That we would encourage one another and build each other up, reminding ourselves and each other of the day that is to come. Father, help us to see and to know and to understand clearly the times that we're in And empower us with readiness, we pray, for the great and awesome day of the Lord. We look forward to it. We look forward to experiencing his glory. Amen.